when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. All right. So that happened. Congress is set to return from one of their many vacations. And once again, we find ourselves staring down the prospect of a government shutdown. Connecticut Representative Rosa DeLauro joins us to explain the next coming round of dysfunction. Meanwhile, it's starting to look more and more as if the Iran deal is going to win enough votes in Congress to forestall a veto melodrama. But just because the deal is nearly done doesn't mean that opponents have any plan to retreat. So we'll discuss the shape of Iran hawkery to come. Finally, if you listen to the public pronouncements of the Democratic presidential candidates, you'll hear many of them talking a good game about criminal justice reform. What you won't hear, however, is a lot of reckoning with the past votes and past actions that have spurred the need for reform in the first place. We're here to say, not so fast, you guys. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. And here's what happened first. Welcome back. So that happened. The podcast, like a Zippo, so unmatched. I'm Jason Lincolns. We're on fire. I'm Arthur Delaney. I'm Zach Carter. We're three dudes who talk about politics. So that happened. I'm glad to be back. I was sick last week. Thanks for reminding the store in my absence. We missed you, but I think it worked out okay. Yeah, glad I'm you're sure. feeling better. I'm feeling much, much better. Um, and I'm feeling much stressed out because I just found out today that I'm moving in three weeks. So that's going to be exciting and stressful. Mm. Moving sucks. It's pretty not, much not as stressful as running for president, though. Jeb Bush kind of wants to move into his brother's old house, right? Oh! Like down in Texas? <laughs> he wants to clear brush down in Texas? No. no his brother's old house, the White House. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Not his brother's current house the on Skull the and ranch. Bones, wherever the Skull and Bones people live <laughs> at, at Yale. Yeah, Jeb, he is, um, he is struggling right now to make headway in the early part of this primary where pseudo-events are running thick and fake candidates are... Are, are seizing the stick. I gotta give Donald Trump credit for that, man. Every time I start to think about Jeb, I think about like how he's like a succubus of energy. Like my will to like do things. Like I think about Jeb, and it's just like oh, I get tired. That's because the low energy Jeb Bush Malays has gone airborne. Well, I want to say that like like okay, Donald, Donald Trump <laughs> is spreading across the country. Donald Trump has put that low energy label on Jeb, but he's been ev- he's not the first to to notice the fact that Jeb has been running for president like he lost a bet and now has to run for president. You know, (laughs) it's like he at the debate, which I did not see, but I read everyone's commentary afterwards. People thought that what is Jeb doing there? Is he is he being held hostage? Does he need our help? So, Jason, you said we're in the thick of pseudo events that are characteristic of early primary season. But I think the events now are getting less pseudo 
And I think the— They will shed their pseudonymous as time yeah, goes on. I think Jeb Bush releasing his tax plan this week is, uh, you know, may, may even mark the beginning of more seriousness. Sure, which is why he went on Stephen Colbert's comedy show to talk about his tax plan, because this is a, a serious <laughs> country. We are serious people. Well, the problem is that's good. Now, wait a minute. No, you're right. It's like no it's, pseudo-event there at all. No, come on. It was, yes, comedy show, but also, you know, the new— <laughs> Uh, host of a show that is an American institution or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> I and, don't watch these shows. And Stephen Colbert asleep, is, a poli- is a political. Uh, he's a political guy. He's got a political reputation. He, you know, it's, his show has always been political, even though it's a new show. Yeah, I think that was a, a pseudo put down. Fair yeah. to say. Well, pseudo I'll, burn. Pseudo burn. You know what? Tell you what, I'll make it up to Stephen Colbert by like, by letting everyone listen to a little brief snatch from uh, the interview he did with Jeb Bush. Now, I love my brother, even though we politically differ. Without in any way diminishing your love for your brother, in what ways do you politically differ from your brother, George? I'm, I'm obviously younger. You're younger. Uh-huh. Much better looking. Uh-huh. Policy, though. Oh, any, oh, policy, any policy? Oh. Yeah. Any policy yeah, I, differences? I think, I think my brother probably didn't control the Republican Congress spending. I think, I think he should have brought the hammer down on the Republicans when they were spending way too much because our brand is limited government. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take care of people, the most the people that need to be on the front of the line, the development disabled, mm-hmm. people that are really struggling. Yeah. That's, a, that's a core value of our party, but we shouldn't spend so much money on, on everything mm-hmm. else. And that's what we were doing in, in the last three or four years of my brother's tenure. He didn't, he didn't veto things. He didn't bring order, fiscal restraint. So, the your, so your, the way you differ from your brother George is that he was not conservative enough. On spending. Look, they call me Vito Corleone in Florida. Because I vetoed 2,500 really? separate line items in the budget. You know, he is an anti-hero in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so, okay, we are making a little bit of life fun of, of Jeb here, but... Let's talk about the tax plan itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I think Stephen Colbert actually had a point there. When, when you when you look at the the tax plan that Jeb Bush released on uh, re- released this week, uh, it does look an awful lot like his brother's tax plan, except <laughs> it's way more extreme. <laughs> so so when George W. Bush took off, it's George on Brando. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, they do similar. There's like similar strategies that are involved, which which allow Jeb to to dodge some of the criticisms of Mitt Romney's. Uh, tax tax plan, but it just actually makes the tax plan a lot worse. Um, I, I, so it, certainly from a, uh, a budgetary perspective. Um, but so it, it, when George W. Bush took office, when he ran ran for president in 2000, the the top ta- income tax rate for for the richest families was 39.6 percent. That's what it is today. Um, at the time, George W. Bush wanted to cut that rate to 33 percent. It was a massive, massive giveaway to wealthy people. It cost a lot of money. Um, now Jeb is looking at the same 39.6% rate, wants to cut it to 28%. It's way, way bigger tax cut, just huge amounts of money. And he basically makes up for these big, big cuts for – he doesn't make up for them, but he sort, he sort of tries to make the pill easier to swallow by telling a lot of poor people, you know what? I'm going to expand the earned income tax credit, and that is basically a tax credit for the working poor. Uh, George- so key, wait, key point, uh, Jeb is not, compla- is not saying that his tax plan would be deficit neutral. Like Mitt Romney did in 2012, and, and which caused everyone to point out the giant math problems that it had. Right. Uh, but the, the trick is, 
there, the math problems exist whether it's deficit neutral or not because somewhere this money's this got this money's got to come from somewhere. Either it comes from just expanding the deficit and jacking up the national debt, which conservatives have been saying they don't want to do for a long time. Uh, or it comes from cutting social programs. So things like expanding the earned income tax credit to make it look like it's a little bit nicer to poor people is kind of going to come back around to bite poor people in the butt because historically the things that the government spends money on are basically social insurance programs that benefit the poor and going to war. So it seems very unlikely that Jeb Bush is going to cut military spending, given that he's running on a pretty hawkish platform so right. far, or is just implied a hawkish platform. So he's essentially building in a whole lot of really, really big tax cuts for the rich. And he goes farther than his brother in this other sense, too. Capital gains, which are, that's, that's what you make, you know, when you buy and sell stocks and bonds and real estate, the money that you make from that is called a capital gain. Jeb Bush wants to actually cut that rate. It's currently at like 23.6% for, uh, for the wealthiest people in the country. He wants to cut it to 20%. When George W. Bush ran for office in 2000, he did not want to cut the capital gains rate because he thought that would make it look like he was too <laughs> too sympathetic to the rich and that he really didn't care about the poor. Because who gets – who benefits from capital gains, Zach? It's rich people. It's all rich people. Right. 50% of all capital gains go to the richest 0.1% of households. Just to let people talk know about this, when people – when you hear candidates talking about flat tax, Taxes. They say, you know, there'll be like one tax rate for everybody mm-hmm. uh, on income. Um, they're leaving out significant sources of income for rich people when they talk about flat taxes, correct? Well, I mean, the, the, the general problem with, with the flat tax is that when, when people talk about flat taxes today, they, they also talk about a whole bunch of other types of taxes that, that hit rich people, like the estate tax, like the capital gains tax. So Marco Rubio, uh, 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 the senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, have both proposed uh, tax programs that eliminate both of those tax rates altogether. Right. I mean, the, 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 the estate tax is even worse than, uh, than capital gains because at least someone's investing some money somewhere on capital gains. The estate tax is just you inheriting money from your rich uncle. Like, right. you didn't do anything to get that money. It's and it's totally typically not when you say... And they'll say, look, this will affect farmers. You say, but it won't. <laughs> you say you get this, but the number of people that could possibly claim to be you in that scenario is, is like, ridiculous. 250,000 families. It's estates. Right. Richest. Yeah. The 250,000 richest families. And they'll, say, and they'll say the estate tax forces people to sell off acres of their farms. And then if you, if you go read all this uh, reporter stories who tried to find someone who had to do that... Well, they didn't find them. Oh, so, there, there are payment plans that exist. So if you if you do own a family farm and you get hit by it, you can you know your tax liability is you know averaged over fifteen years. It's it's ridiculous. Point point uh, being, <laughs> it's it's just really rich people. It's not. It's not dudes in overalls just trying to grow food. Right. And so when, you, when Jeb Bush comes around and says, I'm going to eliminate the estate tax, I'm going to cut the capital gains tax, these are ways to just hand giant piles of money to rich people, and particularly rich people who make money off of securities trading, uh, which we should point out because he's making a big to-do about how he wants to uh, eliminate the carried interest loophole, which is an atrocity. I mean, it is absolutely terrible that the carried interest loophole exists. That is the thing that allows private equity fund managers, hedge fund managers to be taxed at the tiny, tiny capital this gains This is the rate. Warren Buffett secretary thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You so, get taxed at 20% instead of 40%. It seems so like, that's his SOP to populism, yeah. is getting rid of that. For the most part, SOP aside, it seems like he's pandering to the donor constituency rather than the you know. He voter. doesn't have a constituency other than donors, of course. Right. So what? Yeah, of course. Where else is he going to like draw because, his inspiration from? Because why would you know? Why would a regular person who was alive for the last twenty or thirty years not remember what happened when we did George W. Bush's tax plan? It released 
a low-energy malaise over the entire economy. <laughs> <laughs> and it dramatically expanded income inequality. I mean, it was, it was a significant factor. I mean, it, there was a whole lot of deregulation on Wall Street, which I think was a bigger factor in, in, the, in the, the sort of diverging paths for the 1% and everybody sure, else. Sure, sure. But it was a big deal when, when you have the Bush tax cuts in place, giving, just throwing piles of money at rich people. What about well, GDP growth well, in, that, in that scenario? Well, more simply, they said it wouldn't uh, pump up the budget deficits. But it, but it did. did, yeah. To to just like that, like it, it was totally it destroyed this, revenue. Yeah, GDP was not impressive. It was a a, a lame period of growth. And has he promised a ridiculous GDP just to begin with? I know that he's a, promising four four percent GDP right, because he Mike, did it in Florida because he left office at, you know at the peak of a housing bubble that was propping up the whole American mm-hmm. economy, but especially <laughs> Florida's. And then after he left, it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, you, the best, the only, the only, the best part of everyone's like fancy, fancy GDP promises is that there seems to be like a race to like outbid each other. I think Mike Huckabee promised that he would get six percent growth, and I was like, wow, I don't think that's ever happened like in the world. Sounds great. I mean, it's <laughs> happening in China a lot. I mean, uh, you know, it, when you when you start over from zero, growth happens. And you really have fast. A, you have a totalitarian <laughs> government running a command economy. Yeah, you can make you know build some airports in the desert that nobody's going to use. Uh, but I, one of the reasons that these things keep happening, though, is that the Republican sort of idea factory includes the same is staffed by the exact same managers that it was fa- staffed by 10, 15, 20 years ago. So uh, before he unveiled this plan, I thought there was a reform movement afoot on the conservative side to sort of like create a new set of tax policies that didn't just involve giving money to rich I think, people. Uh, I think that is reflected by Jeb uh, making sure to include expansion of the earned income tax credit. I, I, I think that's a popular idea with a lot of conservatives, and, and sooner or later that probably will happen. Uh, but the thing is, he met with uh, Stephen Moore, who's at the Heritage <laughs> Foundation, used to be at Wall Street Journal, <laughs> yeah. uh, Steve Forbes, who was a very, very rich man who ran for president once, and Larry Kudlow, who is on CNBC and the radio. Uh, and, you know, these guys, for, you know, if you listen to them for the last, like, you know, 20 years, some are pretty nice guys, but every time they go on, on the air, they say, all right, here's, what's, here's what we can do to solve a problem with the American economy. Let's cut taxes for rich people. That'll be awesome. And so if you're talking to guys who want to cut taxes for rich people, who have a problem, I mean, Stephen Moore himself has even said, he has a problem with people even talking about inequality as a serious problem. Those people are not going to present you with a tax plan that's radically different from prior Republican proposals. And so you get the Jeb plan, which is just basically his brother's plan, but even more of it. Hope y'all are still awake out there. <laughs> it's so low energy. The Jeb, the Jeb stuff is it's tough. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter here with Arthur Delaney. And today we're joined by Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, an influential Democrat from Connecticut. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So uh, Congress just got back to town. And uh, curiously, now we have another government shutdown standoff over these Planned Parenthood videos. Uh, what's, what's going on over there? Uh, well, first of all, it is really uh, absurd um, and, and to shut the government down. Um, uh, with, with something that is uh, anti-women's health, and it's about a personal ideology here. Um, the House has been calling, and House Democrats uh, have been uh, asking for bipartisan budget negotiations uh, to avert impending, um, uh, an impending uh, shutdown. Uh, because we, we, we ought to be able to come together to find a balanced approach, a responsible way to lift a sequester, uh, and, and, and begin to look at investment and 
what we have seen, though the request has been made uh, to, uh, to the Republicans, is to join us, come to the table. But, you know, this is a pattern. Uh, un- understand, first of all, there is a pattern uh, with regard to uh, really uh, going after women's health. Uh, it's, it's consistent with the majority's position, uh, given the number of times they have tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which was transforming uh, for, for, women's, uh, for women's health. Uh, last year, they tried to shut the government down over the affordable health care. They tried to shut it down over in, uh, in immigration. And now they've come up with a... Uh, uh, you know, with a new bench. Congresswoman Ted Cruz has been part of the pattern. He was largely responsible for the shutdown two years ago. What do you think of what he's doing? It, it looks like it's essentially the same idea this year. Well, you, you know, I mean, I, that is a failed... You speak, tell me what kind of an economic growth policy to deal with the single biggest economic issue that we have today in this nation is that people are in jobs that do not pay them enough money to live on. What? It's shutting the government down. How does that engage in a public policy initiative that addresses the serious economic challenges that families face today. It sounds like you're questioning the wisdom of a government shutdown. <laughs> uh, there is, there is, it, it, one needs to be responsible in government. That's what our job is. It is a pattern of irresponsibility. Their only uh, a, a program initiative has to do with shutting the government down or bringing the nation to a brink, whether it is on a debt ceiling, whether it is on a transportation bill, whether it is on homeland security, they have no positive policy agenda for addressing the economic uh, challenges that we face as a nation. So if you watch Fox News, uh, I mean, you, you, they, they play these, these videos from Planned Parenthood all the time, uh, and, and you can see conservative commenters say this is despicable, this is illegal. Um, have, have you seen the videos, and, and if so, what did you think of them? Honestly, I I have not seen them. So are you aware of what they show? I mean, do you think it's important for people to see them, or is it... Oh, yeah, of course I am. Of course I am aware, you know, know, but the fact is is that uh, these are uh, edited. They they have been doing a clandestine effort uh, for better than a year or more to try to defund Planned Parenthood. That is the issue. It demonstrates a lack of trust in women, no respect for women and the choices that they make, and they want to deny the ability for women to get the kinds of screenings, whether it's for cancer or other uh, uh, illnesses that a Planned Parenthood provides. Have not been, Planned Parenthood has not been charged with any wrongdoing, and, so, and quite frankly, you can go back and track down... Uh, 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 Mr. McConnell, who who uh, really talked about a commission on dealing uh, with these uh, with with these, uh, these these issues. Congresswoman Delora, in the House of Representatives, the Republicans who've signed this Heritage Action Letter saying we've got to defund Planned Parenthood—they're all men. And I wondered if uh, you had spoken to any Republican women, or you have any awareness of what they think of what's going on. Well, look, I'm going to have to say, no, I have not talked to any Republican women, but I, I, it may be clear that they. Uh, but, 
hey, I wouldn't put it past them if they never went to speak to a woman about these issues, on the one hand. Secondly, if they did, no one wanted to get on. And third, as I say, you see, this is more than a letter. This is about a lack of respect and dignity of women and a lack of trust in the choices that women make for their medical needs and for the needs of their families. So uh, Pope Francis will address Congress this month, and you wrote the Pope uh, asking to talk about things like minimum wage and pay, paid sick leave. Uh, have, have you heard back from the Pope? Uh, we have not, but I have, I'm, I'm fully confident of, uh, of, 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 you know, of this Pope speaking about the issues um, that affect uh, 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 the issues of human dignity, the rights of workers, the caring for the poor and the vulnerable. And I, it's so exciting for me as a Catholic uh, that, that his vision for the world is, is so consistent with Catholic social teaching and about prioritizing the poor and the, uh, uh, and, and the vulnerable. And he issues that challenge to the people of the world, those in power. You know, I, I had the opportunity of being there for his installation. And when he first did his, uh, his remarks, he spoke about the Holy Family and the position of St. Mm-hmm. Joseph of caring for the Holy Family. And he likened that to the Church, and that the Church must take care of its family. Well, well speaking of the Church and how it's being taken care of, uh, you know, there's been quite a bit of pushback against uh, Pope Francis from some more conservative factions of the Catholic Church, uh, and some interesting articles on, on the cleanup in the, uh, in the Vatican Bank that the Pope has been pushing. Uh, how much of this, this pushback do you think is ideological, and how, how much of it do you think is, uh, is financial from conservatives who feel a, a financial base being threatened? Well, I, I think the, the Pope it is not business as usual. I think he found uh, a great corruption in the financial institutions and took that on. Uh, and uh, he, by demonstrating his own um, uh, a vision of compassion and where he focuses, where the Church historically has focused uh, on social injustice, there's a rich history there that uh, I, I think what he has said is the, is the, is the Church... Uh, or some of those who are representative have uh, taken the um, um, really set adrift the the, uh, uh, the solid uh, mission of the Catholic Church. Congresswoman Delora, before we let you go, wanted to ask what you make of the Hillary Clinton email scandal and the, the deterioration of her polling numbers with uh, Bernie Sanders charging ahead and her own standing slipping a little bit. I believe that uh, Hillary Clinton will be the... Uh, a Democratic nominee, and Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president of the United States. All right. Well, Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. And we're back. And joining us now is our total pal, Jessica Schulberg. Wow, a pal. I feel like that's a promotion. It is. You were just a bud before. You, before you, I was a foreign policy reporter, and I'm a pal. You unlock, <laughs> this is great. You unlock friendship achievements every time you come on I just podcast. have to go out of town for a week, and I come back, and Jason's missing me, and I'm a pal. I did miss you. Jessica's appearance on the podcast always signals 
that we're about war. to talk about. Yeah, war. <laughs> demise. D- war, demise. Catastrophe. The f- some combination of horsemen are currently galloping across this podcast. Um, strangely, yeah, there you go. I love, I love that we got the like the sound effects going. That's awesome. Usually it's not pestilence, but war and death are, are here. Mm-hmm. Tom Cotton. Tom, yep. The yeah. third, third <laughs> horse of the apocalypse. A lot of Dick Cheney this week. Though. A lot Tom of Dick Cotton's Cheney. new foreign policy advisor. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so, uh, so the Iran deal looks like it's not going to get killed. Not going to get killed. And we'll get into like the who's the what's it's uh, with the whole legislative performance art that we're dealing with now. But we seem to be entering a new world in which uh, the Iran deal is going to be a thing. And so uh, there's been a sort of concomitant convulsion around the idea that the Iran deal is going to happen. And it's been led by our our good friend and baby tear drinker, Dick Cheney. What does concomitant mean? Concomitant. Concomitant. Something that follows. Yeah. I I thought it was what happens when you like can't Keep your poop in. <laughs> no, that's that's incontinent. Oh, oh right. So Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney <laughs> appeared at AEI, an esteemed foreign policy conservative think tank in Washington D.C., to talk about the Iran deal. Um, what was really funny about this appearance, aside from the fact that you could fill a room with people that want to know what Dick Cheney thinks of the Iran deal. Or even surprised about what he thinks about the Iran deal. Right, right. What's he going to say about it? I wonder where he stands. Um, Was the fact that his speech came yesterday, um, a week after the Senate had enough votes to sustain a presidential veto of the resolution of disapproval in the Senate, which basically signaled that the Iran deal is safe. Um, On Tuesday morning, they surpassed that kind of benchmark and got 41 Democrats to say that they would support the deal, which means that the Republicans couldn't even vote it down in the first place. Obama wouldn't even have to use his veto. So you have this huge, huge, widely anticipated talk with Cheney coming to kill the deal and finally rally the right wing to to side with him um, after it was sort of a... I think last time I tried to say fait accompli, and I told you I didn't know how to say it. I should have... You said it just fine. Yeah, fait accompli. He appeared on Fox News Sunday Mm -hmm. before this, and then then he did the speech. He basically made the same basic point on both of these. And to me, the fact that the deal's basically a done deal at this point suggests that he's engaging in some legacy management. He's trying to say, look... There's this whole thing going on here with Iran and diplomacy, but let me make clear: the Iraq War was a good idea. You, you don't right. think you don't think that it's just his bespoke opinion about what should be done with Iran? You think it's about legacy management? <laughs> yeah, because weird. like, which is hilarious because, because I think, as you noted, the Iraq War, regardless war, of whether or not yeah. it led to peace and stability, unquestionably led to a greater Iranian influence in yeah. Iraq and less American influence. The one has salience, yeah. legacy management. That's like cleaning the Aegean stables at this point for Dick Cheney. <laughs> Might as well not even bother. Uh, you were you were talking. I interrupted mm. you, so sorry. Oh okay, well, I mean, I mean, the, the thing that I find just fascinating is that in 2015, um, Dick Cheney is going around saying that the invasion of Iraq actually curbed Iranian int- influence in the region, mm-hmm. region and prevented them from. I, I don't. I don't. You know, on Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace pointed out like actually there were no. You know, uranium enrichment centrifuges mm-hmm. in in uh, in in Iran at the time of the Iraq invasion. There were five thousand by the time Bush and it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cheney left office. Uh, I mean, Cheney just didn't really have a response. Which is he hilarious just... because aside from his point about Iranian influence, he's also saying, you know, this Iranian nuclear deal is totally unacceptable. And the only deal that would be acceptable is zero enrichment. No centrifuges, absolutely no civil nuclear program. And it's kind of like, well, buddy, like if anyone had the chance to negotiate (laughs) that type of deal, it would have been the guy who was in the White House when they didn't already have the capacity to do this. And it's pretty hard to say like – I know you guys have mastered this really intense scientific accomplishment. That's great. But <laughs> could you just kind of roll back the clock on that a little bit and yeah. we won't bomb you, even though bombing you probably wouldn't work anyways? I mean, he even said in his AI speech, he made a big deal about the Obama administration is saying, creating a false choice between this deal and mm-hmm. war. And then he says, we should, we should stop all uranium enrichment in, in Iran and get anytime, anywhere access to to any... Anything we want, inspectors, mm-hmm. inclu- including military sites. I mean, can you imagine if the United States gave anybody, anytime, anywhere access to Well, anything? what's hilarious about like, that is, insane. I don't know if this has come up before, but I was talking to a former IEA safeguards uh, inspector. This was more on the issue of Parcheen, how there was all this controversy about, are the Iranians going to physically take the samples with the IEA watching, or is the IEA going to take the samples? And there's so much controversy mm-hmm. around this. And he's like, do you know what a pain in the ass it is to get an environmental sample from an American military site released, like it has to get like cleared through the entire NSC. He's like, it's not like, I mean, we take it ourselves and we won't even give it up to, unless there's this huge clearance process. It's sort of like the hypocrisy and double standards of what we expect another sovereign country to surrender in terms of its military confidentiality is kind of absurd. And, I mean, and so you go through the, that and, and then you've got, sorry, Jason, I'll just no, make it okay. quick. So, so he's basically presenting terms for a deal that Iran would never possibly agree to. And then he says, and if they won't agree to that, then we should be prepared to take military action. So he's right. saying of it's a false choice. Between We've this. exhausted diplomacy, guys. Okay, <laughs> we tried the diplomatic option, and they're just in transit. Anytime, anywhere, doesn't that include any kind of government facility? Doesn't that include that any politician's bedroom. home? Yeah. yeah. So it's just unrealistic. It's of course, I, I you know, if if we could just harness, maybe if we could harness the power of goalposts moving, no one would need nuclear engine uh, uh, <laughs> enrichment anymore. Um, so let me let me just back up on this because I want to talk about political theories here. Um, we had that Corker Cardin bill, this thing that sort of seemed to buy everyone kind of a nice neat out. I've, I've chatted to some people with some people work at the state department about this and they say, I'm not crazy to think this. My thought is that obviously there's, there's a number of, of Republicans who, who are just sort of do or die for, not allowing Iran to have even a benefit in a negotiation, uh, just a complete dead ender. Like if Iran, mm-hmm. if Iran doesn't walk away from the table with two black eyes and they're total tired, then there's total capitulation. Um, but I tend to see, I tend to believe that there are Republicans, probably more establishment type Republicans, 
who are absolutely fine with the fact that the deal has been cut, that they maybe can't publicly say it, and they maybe will vote, cast votes against it. Oh, sure. But I think that they're happier with the current arrangement because I think it matters more to them that their fingerprints aren't on it, Mm -hmm. that the Democratic Party has, like, decided to hold hands and walk Mm -hmm. into the water on this. Long term, if... Iran behaves. There's zero risk of opposing this deal. Right. If there's never a problem with Iran, then they can... You guys got lucky. Like, good thing that worked out. Yeah, and there's no consequences (laughs) for the people who opposed it. They'll be like, hey, we were there policing this deal. Mm -hmm. We're We're glad it went through. We got such a strong enforcement. And if, yeah, and if things... Were the reasons Iran was afraid to cheat. Right. And if things do go wrong, then this is the Democrats' Iraq war vote. Right. The thing that they'll... And they get... You have like a 15-year time horizon for things to go wrong, right? Right, so yeah. as soon as something goes bad, you can so say, that, oh, you stupid Democrats, Am I crazy? So like, there's a separation between a, a corker and a cotton on this. I mean, I would say a Jeff Flake and a cotton. I think Jeff yeah. Flake was one of the, the true sort of swing votes. I know everyone really harped in on Susan Collins, but if you sort of watch Jeff Flake's actions in the lead-up, you know, he was very, very moderate about this and seemed a little bit more acquiescent to the White House's request to... Give our negotiators space before you threaten to sanction them back into right. oblivion. Um, Corker's interesting. I think I feel a little bamboozled by Corker, to be honest. Really? Why? Why? So I covered that Corker-Cardin uh, legislative process really, really closely. And I remember thinking, like, man, like, thank God we have a super reasonable Republican <laughs> in this really high position of leadership in the very preeminent Senate Foreign Relations Committee who's really making an effort to reach out to Democrats. And, you know, he's not a politician. He's a businessman. Like, he wants to get shit done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true. I think he does, unlike Cotton, he understands that it's better to get a law passed that isn't perfect. Corker comes with a pen and pad. Right. Cotton comes with a pair of scissors. Exactly. He's willing to compromise for the greater good of getting something done, whereas Cotton says, my way to the highway. And so I think I translated that uh, willingness to compromise that he showed in the legislative process to a sign that he would be similarly understanding that the final Iranian nuclear deal would require some compromises from the U.S. Right. And I mean, like, from... Day one, minute one, he came out swinging against this deal with criticisms that I thought were a little bit disingenuous. And so it sort of felt to me that he did a really good job as a politician um, casting himself as this really moderate Republican who wasn't predisposed to hating the deal. So that when he came out and hated the deal later, he had a little bit more credit to say, hey, look, I was open to this. Like, I wanted diplomacy. Like, you guys just didn't get it. And I think that that argument was really persuasive with people like Cardin and people that he did work with really closely. So one last thing before we go on. Is there... Is there, a, is there a salient movement to, uh, to scuttle this deal right now? When we did drinking and talking, you were there, okay? We had, uh, we had Senator Murphy, and he, he described this issue as one in which he got phone calls, but it wasn't a constant barrage of, mm-hmm. you got to vote against it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't shout you down at a, at a, uh, at a, at a, at a town hall meeting type right. of deal. Well, at least in Connecticut. Yeah, outside of, outside of the, the few people who, who cleave to the notion that it's got to be stopped, you're Tom Cotton's. Do you see this as a salient issue in the, in the public at large or um, public I think, largely behind the deal? I think it is a salient issue. I mean, I think if you look at – it's very divided. I think if you look at Joe Manchin, who on July 14th came out saying – I think his exact words in late July was, I am leaning towards supporting this deal. Like the only alternative to this deal is war. You're saying, wow, here's this Democrat from West Virginia, a very red state with very low Obama approval ratings like coming out in support of it. This is great. Everyone thought he would be like a pretty key swing vote. Um, and a couple of days ago, he came out against it and didn't really offer a compelling narrative to why he switched. And I mean, the easiest 
go to is he went back to West Virginia for a month and got just pummeled by his constituents. He said, what are you doing capitulating <laughs> to the Iranians? Or right. or the deal was already going to go through and he had the opportunity to say, all right, well, here's a free vote for uh, for people who don't like the uh, don't like the deal. <laughs> I but it seems strange to like, put, subject just... yourself to so much um, backtracking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just such a clear reversal for him. Like, that's kind of embarrassing. Like, no politician really wants to say, like, the only alternative is war. Um, wait, Therefore, we're, we're not this. <laughs> you know, it kind of made him look a little bit like an idiot. Hey, we're back, and we're going to sort of go back in time to talk about something that happened. Woo, 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 right, we're going to have sound effects, important sound effects. Uh, that take us back in time. We're going to talk about uh, mass incarceration and criminal justice reform. And we're going to start things off by just pointing out back in April, I believe, our former colleague, uh, Radley Balco, responded to uh, some of the Democrats who have gotten in the presidential race talking about criminal justice reform. He said, no praise for career politicians who've come around on mass incarceration until they show contrition for the votes that contributed to it. And we're talking about a big bill that uh, had... Joe Biden's authorship and Bill Clinton's signature called the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. Which and, pa- and Hillary Clinton's strong and support. Hillary Clinton's strong support. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act passed in 1994. This bill included a lot of things that you probably heard about and probably feel good about. The Violence Against Women Act saw its origins in this bill. Federal assault weapons ban also in this bill. There were uh, measures in this bill that helped uh, law enforcement uh, prosecute sex offenders, uh, make domestic violence cases, uh, help with gang-related criminal activities. But here are some of the controversial things that were in this bill. This bill eliminated inmate education. Previously, prior to this, inmates could apply for Pell Grants to receive post-secondary education while incarcerated. It authorized a lot of money for new prisons and new juvie boot camps. And probably most importantly, it enshrined the three strikes and you're out provision, which led to, well, just an explosion in incarceration after that. At three strikes and you're out, that means you're, you're convicted of three felonies, your life in prison without parole. Yeah, that's yeah exactly. That's it. You're done. You're done. No chance. And let's, let's keep in mind some of these things, these uh, felony drug arrests, what they entailed. Penny ante shit. Get caught with an ounce of weed three times and you're in jail forever. Yeah, it, was, I don't, it may not have been that extreme, but it's close to it. It's close to it. It's worth pointing out that a lot of these, a lot of the presidential candidates have kind of re-entered the, they've, they've entered the political, the, the presidential campaign in a new world, world way different from 1994. There's been a reckoning with all this stuff. Yeah, on both sides. You know, the At re- least inside the Beltway. We, yeah. we also got to remember the Republicans back in the 90s were the, the hardcore law and order party. You know, this is the, this is the team that won uh, elections with fear-mongering ads about crime. And uh, they've, come, they've come a long way, too. Now their leadership is talking about getting rid of mandatory minimum sentencing, ending the drug war, the ridiculous There's drug a whole war. conservative movement called Right on Crime, which is about, about getting rid of some of these tough on crime policies. Yeah. RNC yeah. chairman Ken Melman apologized for the Southern strategy all the way back in 2005. Yeah, and Bill Clinton, for his part, ha- has, has copped to the fact that in passing this bill, he made the problem worse. Um, wow. So everything's different, and here come these presidential candidates. Yeah, but we got to reckon with what they said before. We're, here, we're going to queue up something that uh, Hillary Clinton said. This is in 1996, two weeks, two years, sorry, two years, sorry, after the law passed. Listen to hear her talk about um, her husband's crime bill. The fourth challenge is to take back our streets from crime, gangs, and drugs. 
And we have actually been making progress on this count as a nation because of what local law enforcement officials are doing, because of what citizens and neighborhood patrols are doing. We're making some progress. Much of it is related to the initiative called community policing because we have finally gotten more police officers on the street. That was one of the goals that the president had when he pushed the crime bill that was passed in 1994. He promised 100,000 police. We're moving in that direction, but we can see it already makes a difference because if we have more police interacting with people, having them on the streets, we can prevent crimes. We can prevent petty crimes from turning into something worse. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs, just as in a previous generation we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. In addition to that, he has appointed a new drug czar. You probably saw him Tuesday night. He's one of the most distinguished, uh, active military generals that we have in our country. He's already proven that he knows how to interdict drugs because of his command of the uh, South American uh, activity on behalf of the United States. But General McCaffrey will make a big difference, and I believe it is now time for all of us to know what we can do individually to be part of this anti-crime, anti-gangs, anti-drug effort. Booty boop. Okay, so. So here's what's amazing to me about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's not, she's not defending, like, the other parts of the bill, right? She's not saying, you know, we, we need to pass this because I know it's tough to deal with these mandatory minimums because, but, but, you know, we really want to get the violence against women stuff passed. She's saying, she's talking about the, the bad shit in the bill, and she's being into it and saying it's a good Way into rate. it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's. She's calling black people super predators. And it, but, but here's what's, here's what's remarkable to me. If you look at her, at, at her approval rating, among black voters, it is something like it's something like you know over eighty percent, maybe ninety yeah. percent. Bernie Sanders' approval rating is going up quite a bit among black voters. Uh, it was like sixteen net net approval favorability rating was like sixteen percent a couple months ago. Now it's up at like thirty eight percent. So even though he's getting protested by Black Lives Matter and stuff, I think when black voters see his uh, his platform as a result of the protests, some of them like it. But he's nowhere near Hillary Clinton's level of of approval. And and yet when it came to the crime bill, wh- where was where was he on that? So everyone has been like, oh, man, this crime politics, it was the 90s. Everything was different. We see the light now. But actually, Bernie Sanders saw it for what it was at the time. Yeah, that's true. He said we already have the most jails and you know the highest per capita jail population in the world. And putting more people in jail won't fix the problem. He gave a floor speech where he said, uh, sounding exactly like he sounds today, that you can electrocute or you can educate. <laughs> uh, and obviously we we went with electrocute and it didn't work out. Right. So but so 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 it's interesting that he doesn't really get a lot of credit for that or at least credit that appears to be reflected in his popularity with African Americans. Yeah, that's totally true. And you know, Hillary Clinton now has has completely reversed herself on this. She said, and this is a quote from her, keeping, keeping, people behind, keeping people behind bars does little to reduce crime, does a lot to tear apart families. Our prisons and our jails are now our mental health institutions. She, she's, you know, she's struck out on a new path uh, against mass incarceration, but it's quite 
a turnaround. And I wonder if it has less to do with the fact that, I mean, it was more her husband's conspicuous failure than her own. Uh, he was the one that put his name on the bill. She just talked it up. Right. But uh, I, I, she defended this through the 2008 election. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I she mean, did. She through, did. In, you know, in the debates with President, with now President Barack Obama, I mean, she was saying that the, these tough on crime policies were good. You're right. But she's taken, she's, she's taken a reverse on this now. Do you think people are going to give her a pass? Yes. <laughs> she's getting, the pass is being given. It's, it's interesting because I think that one of the things you kind of have to admit watching Hillary Clinton talk about this is that it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of distant early warning that she believes the path to victory is to reconstitute the Obama coalition. That if, if she thought she could win by bringing working class white people back to the Democratic Party, she wouldn't talk like this. She's definitely now all in with Obama's new Democratic coalition. Right. And, and uh, Republicans, meanwhile, you do see some of the tough on crime stuff coming back with the few police killings that have happened, people trying to connect them to Black Lives Matter. Right. And, and so th- there is the flip side of this. And that's why I, it seems to me Clinton and everyone else will get a pass. Right. Because, because look what Republicans are talking about. Yeah. I mean, you see Fox News last Sunday. I had to cover the shows for HuffPost, which was why Sorry. I was watching it. But they did a whole segment about this this huge, you know, you watch the segment, you get this imp- impression there's this huge increase in, uh, in, uh, in, in the killings of police officers right. uh, that have happened since Ferguson. They even talked about the Ferguson effect on the thing. Oh, yeah, it's Scott Walker true. said, this isn't the America I remember. And I was like, well, the America you grew or this isn't the America I grew up in. I was like, well, the America you grew up in, like, cops were killed three times as often as they are now, or some crazy statistical. Yeah, it's a problem that's gotten much better. Well, one guy who continues to dine out on his involvement in this 1994 bill is Joe Biden, who who as recently as April has said they put 100,000 cops on the street. It cost $1 billion, which I guess we're saying it's cost-effective. But because crime was rampant, everyone signed on to, to this bill, and it worked. He says it worked. Radley, who I just mentioned, uh, Radley Balco, took a different stance on this. He, his, here's a quote from Radley. But Joe Biden has supported uh, more damaging drug war legislation than any Democrat in Congress. Hate the way federal prosecutors use RICO laws to take aim at drug offenders? Thank Biden. How about the abomination of federal asset forfeiture laws? Thank Biden. Think federal prosecutors have too much power in drug cases? Thank Biden. Think the title of a drug czar is sanctimonious and silly? Thank Biden, who helped create the position and still considers it an accomplishment. Uh, And our own Matt Ferner and Nick Wing also mentioned that Biden was the guy who helped create this huge disparity between crack and powder cocaine penalties. Biden authored portions of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which is two years after the, the crime bill we talked about. It created a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder, co- powder cocaine. Until reforms were made in 2010, individuals caught with just 5 grams of crack were subject to the same mandatory minimum sentence of 5 years in prison as those caught with 500 grams of powder cocaine. This is a good example of why I think the Biden boomlet we've just had is not durable. But it's amazing. It's already dissipating. Can I just say, just like to take a, take a scope of the headlines— Biden, who's not running, who's maybe thinking about putting his toe in the water, he gets close to the water's edge, and there's, pow, a ton of headlines about like, oh, this fucking crime bill could come back to haunt Biden. Yeah, there's a lot of algae. Yeah, everyone it's, talks the lake about— lake is all green. Everyone is talking about <laughs> the, the crime bill coming back to haunt <laughs> Biden. And to, an, to a certain extent, sure, he authored it. He authored it, praises it to this day. But Clinton has gotten a pass. 
Clinton has gotten the pass. She totally has. She's totally getting a pass. Uh, and and like the one guy who seemed to get it right at the time, Bernie Sanders, people are like, well, who are you? What have you done? I mean, it's not true because he's going he's doing really well in the polls. I think I think a lot of that is fueled not though, not by serious policy reflection no. on crime, but but just by Hillary Clinton not being good at answering questions about a dumb email thing she did, <laughs> which is which is a real thing that was really stupid. But but I mean, this this idea, I mean, this is something the Democratic Party has always had to deal with, right? Is because mem- people who vote Democrat like the idea that they're really nice to black people. They like the idea that they support things that don't create wide racial inequality or wide economic inequality. And they vote for people and they sort of project those values onto the people they vote for, knowing that the Republicans on the other side sort of openly don't share those va- those values, right? I mean, the whole right. Southern strategy is all about trying to appeal to racist and bigoted voters. And you still see this with things over same-sex marriage today. And I mean, with Donald Trump's immigrant strategy and everything. So, it's, so it's, there, there are real differences there. But, but Democratic voters don't like to think that people they've supported for decades on end actually have done a lot of things and backed a lot of things that don't really stand up to the values that they, that, that they claim to espouse. We'll talk about one last person. This is a guy who uh, had to implement crime policy at street level. Martin O'Malley as mayor of Baltimore. Let's, I want to play this thing from the former head of training of Baltimore City Police, Neil Franklin. Uh, this is this year, and this is when uh, O'Malley was returning to the United States and returning to Baltimore for a fraught Baltimore, which was dealing with the Freddie Gray situation. We all know the war on drugs doesn't work. It's a war on people. The reform that's needed in rolling back these policies whether it's intentional or not, the racism that's, that's entrenched in these systems, whether it's intentional or not, we have to end it and move to a place of regulation and control for these drugs. Well, let me ask you about Martin O'Malley. He was in the streets last night. He was a oh seven-year mayor of Baltimore. Oh, my Why'd you have to say that name? Well, I understand well, he that he's coming to Baltimore. Listen, listen to what I have to say here. In 2005, I left Baltimore City as a head of training in 2004. By then, we had started this zero tolerance, uh, these programs here in Baltimore City under the leadership of Mayor, then Mayor Martin O'Malley. In 2005, 108,000 people arrested here in Baltimore City. In one year, 620,000 people live in this city. Now, we're talking about multiple arrests. That's why the city got sued because over 20% of those people who were arrested were released with no charges preferred because there was no probable cause for the arrest. Did it, does that sound familiar? Freddie Gray, no probable cause for the arrest? If you want, I, I don't want to say this. Well, I'm going to say it anyway. If he's coming back to town, you may see a riot. Well, we don't want to, we don't want to stir anything up here either. Uh, we, but, we don't. But I we do want to ask you. I, I would encourage I, him not to come back to Baltimore. So, okay, that's Neil Franklin saying that uh, he's worried that people will riot if O'Malley comes back. It didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen. He took some criticism, though, from people on the street about the about what he had done to, like, exacerbate that situation. He had, he, he had a very awkward time. Real awkward time. But but he, he deserves the lumps because when he was mayor, he took the lid off the cops. 
um, as you know, David Simon gave an interview with uh, the Marshall Project, and he talked about how you know he uh, the, the first thing O'Malley did was just start like sweeping up the inner cities, just bringing people in on humbles. Clearing bodies, just, just, say, just arresting people for standing there. Yeah, literally just arresting people for standing there, not even charging them, just like keeping them overnight, handing people forms. That... And David Simon's not just saying that; it's well documented. No, David Simon's when he was shooting the wire, his own crew would go home at night, and like on their way home, they get picked up on these humbles and end up on on Eager Street, being processed along with everyone else. O'Malley was like sweeping up. Simon said in the interview that Mayor Carcetti, you know, he wasn't based on Martin O'Malley. <laughs> But he was. He also <laughs> it tracks really close. <laughs> he all, now he, clear. <laughs> he also said, David Simon's a weird dude. He, he also said that if he ran for president, he'd vote for O'Malley, even though he's so pissed at O'Malley. Uh, that, is, that is a strong case of frenemies. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But, you know, O'Malley, O'Malley did an interview with the Des Moines Register in which he talked about what he believes modern police work constitutes. And he talked about, you know, having a robust IA department, internal affairs department, uh, having a, a citizen review board and, and always be uh, ha- always be closing, be, be, always, be always closing. be closing, always <laughs> be putting the citizen review board's phone number in the hands of people who needed it. There is every point he's making about cops now is that you got to put the straps on. You got to put the lid back on. But he wanted hell with the lid off when he was mayor of Baltimore. And he wanted it off because it was just, he wanted that dramatic and to light the trash crime. can on fire while the lid was <laughs> off. The violent, violent, the reason the politics have changed. An underlying reason has got to be a huge decline in violent crime over the past few decades. I, I bet everything would just revert if crime went back up. Well, you know, Kevin Trump at Mother Jones has done a lot of research on this, and he makes a strong case that the thing that actually has brought violent crime down has nothing to do with a policy, a crime policy we've passed, but has to do with the fact that lead is no longer as prevalent in our society as it used to be. There's no leaded gasoline anymore. Yeah. There's no leaded paint. Uh, that's, that's one of the theories. Yeah, it's a pretty compelling theory. Though, uh, Freddie Gray was a victim of lead poisoning. Was he? Oh, people yeah. ought to know. I, I feel like if you're still poor in the United States, poverty alone has you one foot in the clink, you know, as opposed to as opposed to being affluent. We, we've talked about now the past. Do you think that there is a, a hope for criminal justice reform from these presidential candidates? Yes. Or is it all talk and bluster? It's, it, there's hope. I think there's hope. I think... Um... I think it's kind of up to voters whether they want to care about the past and hold prior candidates accountable. But, I mean, even Republican senators say that they at least give lip service to the idea of criminal justice reform now. So it does seem plausible to me that this is something that could happen in a serious Congress in 2017. All right. Well, I'll believe it when I see it, y'all. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan, engineered by Brad Shannon, with assistance from Christine Canetta. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Connecticut Representative Rosa DeLauro, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Please check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thank you for listening, and we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.